0: You're turning to Psalm 28, I was struck as I was studying this text, have you, ever, have you ever looked at something and thought to yourself, I could do that, only to realize that that was not the right first thought to have? How many of you remember when you first learned how to ride a bicycle? Anybody? A few of you? Okay, good. Some of you haven't learned yet? Just kidding. Um... When I was learning how to ride a bicycle, my father, at that moment of sheer frustration, because I kept falling, I was frustrated too, but he had run out of things to tell me of what to do differently. So he put, we took the training wheels off the bicycle, and he basically said if you can get the bicycle all the way from here to where the garbage cans were in our, our backyard, I'll give you $20, and you've got to understand, at that time, what am I saying at that time? That still is a lot of money. (laughs) A deep, deep motivator as I was like, it, it kept me going on the bicycle. It's easy sometimes to look at something and say, oh, yeah, I understand what's going on here. I got this. This is Psalm 28, There's a lot of things going on in Psalm 28 that we need to be mindful of this morning. So I want to ask God as we begin, as we hear his word, as we uh, consider the inspired words of scripture this morning, that he would be with us and that he would move among us by his spirit so that we would hear him and that we would be changed by him. So stand if you would, Psalm 28, we'll read um, verses 1 through 9. A psalm of David, to you, O Lord, I call my rock. Be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. Do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward. Because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of his hands, he will tear them down and build them up no more. Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts, and I am helped. My heart exults, and with my song I give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. Beloved in Christ, this is God's word. Let's pray. Father, would you give us a humility of heart and mind to hear your word to hear it as it is graciously given to us, not to shame us or to scorn us, but to sanctify us and perhaps even save us. Would you be with us, we pray. And after you've done your work and after um, you have accomplished your purposes would you then receive all the glory and the praise and the honor? For we ask these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated if you would. So we've been learning about different types of prayer over the course of this summer. Um, and we've considered various categories of prayer. We've looked at the Psalms of, of meditation, where we have prayed uh, our hearts into the truth of God. We've looked also at psalms of confession, where we have prayed our hearts out of sin and guilt. Um, We've looked also at psalms of lamentation, where we've prayed our hearts through trouble and suffering. So this last category, these last three psalms that we're going to look at, over the course of this summer series, are psalms of petition and refuge. These are psalms that look ahead into the future. And they go to God and they ask him to work out his justice and his love in history. This is when Jesus taught his disciples to pray in the Lord's Prayer. He said, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So these psalms of refuge, these psalms of petition, are, uh, are, are seeking God to work out his justice and his love. Now I'm going to spend three weeks on this. In the first week, we're going to look at praying our fears. This would be why would we pray these psalms in the first, pra- in the first place, and a lot of times it has to do with what we're afraid of, not in our present, but what we see coming down the line. Now, you might be wondering what this particular psalm is about. and so I want to give us three main points that all kind of tie into this one big idea. In praying about the future in the midst of the present, that is in praying about what has not yet happened in the here and now, there are three things that we must do. The first thing we have to do is bring our petitions humbly. The second thing that we need to do is attend our own hearts And then the third thing that we need to do is to remember the promises of God. Now, the first thing that I want you to see is bring our petitions humbly. Now, we're going to move around a little bit in the Psalms, so keep your, uh, your copy of the scripture, whether it's your Bible or the insert in your program, handy as we look at these things. This psalm invites us into an honest conversation with God about bringing uncertainty before the Lord and trusting him to act. And this is an incredibly good thing. This is... This is the grace of God that we are able to come and bring all of our uncertainty and all of our, um, all of our fears before Him, not only just so that He hears us, but we believe that He's going to act. We believe that He's going to do something about it. Now, what are the things that David is, uh, is asking God to act towards? The first one's pretty obvious. If you look at verse 4 in the psalm, look at what David says. Give to them, that would be the ones who are doing wicked according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward. What's David asking for here? David is praying for justice. David is praying for God to do justly. For God to act and to see that there is wrong happening in the world and in so doing to act justly. When you read about all of the injustice in the world, it is not difficult for us to feel that same cry welling up within us. Right? Right? How many of you were horrified when you read in the news about this this ramshackle compound in New Mexico where allegedly there were people being trained to shoot schools? My heart's broken for the innocent children and my heart cries out for the justice of God to come against those who would perpetrate such evil. We see all around us reminders of evil and reminders of injustice. And it causes us a great heaviness of heart. It causes us to cry out to God. But there's a caution, friends. There's a caution that we ought to feel when we call out to God and say, God, Show your justice. I have to be honest with you, I get a little bit nervous about those prayers. David did two. Because here's the other thing that I want you to see that's going on here in this psalm. I want you to look back one verse at verse 3. David says, do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil. Now, why does David say that? Why does David say that? Now, some have just said that he's just trying to make sure that God remembers who's praying here, that it's David, and that there are other people out there, the unjust ones, the ones who are doing evil, that need to be, need to be dealt with. But I don't think so. Why would then David be, if he was, if David was so sure about his own standing before God, why would David also be crying out for mercy himself? Do You see that? You see what I'm talking about? David cries out for mercy. David's praying that God would not drag him off with the wicked, with the workers of evil. At verse 2, David says this, hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry out to you for help. I think when David is asking the Lord to be just towards the wicked, David knows what he's saying. That God's definition of wickedness is much broader than ours. You see what I'm saying? We have to be really careful when we say, well, that person's wicked, because the Bible, as you're going to see in a minute, minute, has has a much broader definition of wickedness than perhaps we do. David knows in his heart what Paul would later write to the Romans. Paul says in Romans 3, verses 22 and 23, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, Paul says there's no distinction, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That is kings and rebels. That is moral, upright, and heinous and villainous. All have sinned. There is no distinction. You can be the most polite, moral person that there is, or at least better than your neighbor or you can be a scoundrel, and there is no distinction at all. So this is why I want to grow very cautious in my own heart when I begin to uh, assert in specificity where God should choose to work out his justice. But what's our hope? See, what David was, uh, what David was unsure of, in, in terms of, am I, am I the wicked one? You see, this is where, in in light of the cross and in light of Jesus, we can know something that David, uh, David did not know in fullness. Look at what Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah fifty three verse nine. Because it's not just about, am I humble enough? Our, humble, our humility is bound up, it's wrapped up in Jesus' humiliation. Isaiah 53 verse 9 says this, And they made his grave, that would be the servant who suffered, with the wicked and, a, and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. David was not dragged away with the wicked because Jesus was dragged away with the wicked. You and I are not dragged away with the wicked because Jesus was dragged away with the wicked in our place. Because we have been spiritually united to Christ in his death, God treats us as if we have already been executed for our sins and paid our debts. When we think about all of the things that go on in the world, it's almost, um, it's painful sometimes. And this is the beautiful thing about Christianity. You see, it's not simply a question of, "Am am I going to church? Am I reading my Bible? Am I having my quiet times? It's a matter of your life is united in Christ. And your identity is bound up in his. And because he died, you died. And because he was raised, you too will be raised. It's his life that was given so that you would have life. So what was David's definition of wickedness? What was, what was David seeing here that we ought to pay attention to? And this is the second thing. So the first is bring our positions humbly, right? We want to be really careful about going before God and say, hey, God, justice. We need justice. This is unjust. This is bad things happening in the world, okay? Be careful. Be humble. Because here's the second thing. I want you to attend to your own heart. You and I need to attend to our own hearts. Look with me. What was, what was David seeing in his own heart? What was it that he was seeing that is wicked? The first was relationships with other people. Look again at verse 3. Look how David describes what the wicked people were doing. Do you see it? Do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil, who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. What does this mean? Okay. Um, How many of you uh, are native Southerners? Quick show of hands. Thank you. Just checking. So if you understand, uh, if I say bless your heart, do you understand what's happening right now? Okay. Bless, okay. So, you may have experienced this before. Um, it's a way that we in the South try and maintain, comport politeness while still really trying to get, get our point across. You may, uh, the person that's being talked about does or says uh, really annoying or aggravating things uh, and you speak to them, uh, when you speak of them, you say, bless their heart. They were chewing loudly again, bless their heart, (laughs) or whatever the thing is. This is not actually you calling down a blessing on them. It's a way of speaking peace about your neighbor when, in fact, what you really are doing is nourishing evil in your own heart towards them. See, what David is saying here is that um, you as a person are, you appear nice on the surface you're you're cordial, you're pleasant to be around. You may even say pleasant things to one another. But then when, when, when it's just you or you with your trusted group of people, you tell them how you really feel. And all of a sudden those nice smiles and handshakes and Christian side hugs and everything else are gone. And now it's how you really feel. Because deep down, you're hostile. You're seeking your own interests and your own advantage in every relationship and in every situation. But there's a second aspect to wickedness here as well, and it's down in verse 5. So the second aspect that we see is the wicked people don't regard the works of the Lord or the work of his hands, okay? They don't regard the works of the Lord or the work of his hands. Now, what does this mean? It is not so much that the people are living in disbelief so much as they are living in disregard. Let me say that again. It's not so much that the people are living in disbelief, they are living in disregard. Now, what's the difference? They have become functional atheists. Functional atheists. They may even verbally profess to love God, believe in God, but deep down they are practical functional atheists they may may be completely moral completely upright but what is driving it all what's going on down deep in the core of their being is is not coming from a place of dependence on the spirit It's all self-interested. It's all self-motivated. It has completely left God out of the equation. And the morality, right, the uprightness, the politeness, the being a good citizen that everybody else sees, this is not a politeness or a morality or an uprightness to advance God's kingdom at all. It's rather simply practical for them. It makes them feel good. It makes them feel superior. It makes them feel like they're at least not as bad as their neighbor down the street is. Bless their hearts. Their thoughts, their emotions, their desires, their choices are not driven by what would bring God the most glory what would advance the kingdom of God more in the world, but are instead being driven by what would bring the most happiness, ease, and comfort to them in the moment. you see the difference? Do you see what David's saying? This is what David is saying is wickedness. This, work with me, this is where David is calling for God to act justly. How many of us now want God to act justly? See, it's it's right for us to be humble about our own hearts and prayers. And I'm not, look, I'm not saying this to scare you. And I'm not saying this to, to, to bring uh, fear into you. But beloved, the unique access that we have to pray is not to our best buddy. It's to the God of the universe who holds all things together by his single spoken word. It is the God who formed us, and if that God ever so desired, we cease to be. And yet, because of Jesus, because of God loving us and condescending to us and humiliating himself on behalf of us, we now have access to him because we are united to the Son whom God loves. So let me ask you this. How do you feel now about the Bible's definition of wickedness? How do you feel about it? Because when we're honest with ourselves, when we're really honest with ourselves, this is how we, we view the wicked people. The wicked people in the world are the dictators, the serial killers the molesters, the monsters, those are the wicked people. We have a category for them. And our category for them is just so long as it's not me. Right? But when you take the words of this psalm and listen to what it says, I would submit to you that most of the folks living around us are living in wickedness. Most people are not living. um, Some people are living in straight-out disbelief. But it's a good chance that many of us, functionally, down deep, down to the core of our being, are not living so much in disbelief as we are living in disregard. Including myself. So, what do we do about it? We have to look. We have to attend to our own hearts. We have to be honest about who we really are and what we've really done. Do you see this? We are selfish rather than selfless in our relationships. We can be cordial and polite and well mannered, but we're using relationships and using people. This is the thing, friends. Listen. I was telling someone about... Um, someone had asked me at one point why I don't um, address every single, every single issue of the day when I preach. Um, and the answer to that is this. My, my job the thing that God's called me to do. The thing that God has called me to do is not to build a platform, to write books, to go on a speaking circuit, or, and this is really important here, to be the one that sends, uh, or to be the one that produces sermons that people send to all their friends and be an internet preacher. Like, that's not my thing. That's not what I do. My job, the thing that God has called me to do, is to pastor this church. And so what that means is, when the issues of the day impact us in here, we'll deal with it, okay? But I don't preach sermons to stand up here and raise my voice And talk about them out there. Because I've not been called to pastor them out there. Are you with me? It's us in here. It's you and I. We're in this together. If You know me well. You know that I'm not coming from Sinai saying, by the way, when you get as sanctified as me. If you know me, you know. I'm praying for David right now because he's struggling to get through this text because he's seeing himself all over the pages, okay? The problem is I'm not preaching this sermon so we can elbow and say, gosh, I wish that person out there was there to hear. Friends, it is God's grace and God's gift that you and I are here today to hear God's word because, listen, listen, I'm not talking about them out there, those unnamed others who really should have been here today to hear the sermon. I'm talking about me, and I'm talking about you, and I'm talking about us. We all have hearts that are filled with real evil and real wickedness, and it and it's nothing apart from the grace and the mercy and the love and the resurrection of Jesus that any of us have anything to say. And what that means is because you've been united with Christ in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection, and because flesh has gone to glory one day, your flesh and my flesh will go there as well, that gives us the ability to then be honest with ourselves, to look at our hearts with eyes that are not um, giving ourselves excuses like, I'm not that bad. I'm not the one he's talking about. He said he's talking about everybody in the room, but he didn't mean me. Yes, I did. Sorry, Tom. (laughs) This is why Paul says, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is no one who seeks God. There is no one who understands. So what do we do? See, now that we've set the stage, we can talk about prayer. (laughs) Right? Now that we've set the stage, we can talk about prayer. Because, in order to really be mindful about what God is doing, first of all, we approach God with humility, right? We don't presume anything upon God. The second thing that we need to do is attend to our own hearts. Attend to our own hearts. This is who I really am, and this is who, what I've really done. But it's still an incomplete thought. The final part of it is to rest and to trust and to remember, remember the promises of God. Okay? Let's keep going. Last point. So I want to look now at how David prayed this petition psalm. There are three things that we learn about his belief that underlie his request. How did he pray the psalm? When he came and he saw injustice in the world, when he saw things that were um, that were disturbing and and fearful, what did he do? What were the beliefs that underlie that were undergirding his prayer? And some of these you can see from his posture. You can see this back in verse two. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help. When I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. There's two things that I want you to see right there about his posture in lifting up of his hands, okay? Now, um, depending upon what uh, Christian tradition you have come from, um, you are familiar with uplifted hands as a posture of worship, right? A lot of times, uh, if you have come from a tradition that is, Uh, very charismatic or very expressive in your worship, your hands are lifted like this, okay? If you're more reserved, your hands are lifted like this. If you're Presbyterian, your hands are lifted like this, okay? But at some level, there is expression going on, okay? But when David says uplifted hands, this is not Um, David was not necessarily first and foremost thinking about a posture of worship. He was thinking about other things. First of all, let's do an experiment. Um, Officer Bill, uh, Bill Camp, one of our elders, is on this morning. He works uh, every other uh, Sunday morning with the Coppell Police Department. Uh, So he should be off of his shift and home taking a nap. Yes, fantastic. Um, Always good to look at the officer's wife and make sure that That's still true. Um, So if Officer Bill were making a stop, let's say he's out on patrol over in the mean streets of Capel, and at some point, yeah, he has to get out. Why are you laughing at me? Have you been in that warehouse district? I've been in that warehouse district. Those Amazon employees. (laughs) Keep going. Okay, let's say Officer Bill uh, has to tell someone, stop, put your hands up. What is he asking them to do at that moment? Let me give you a heads up. He's not asking them to have a Jesus moment. Well, actually, maybe he is, but not in the way you think. He's not asking them to to engage in worship at that moment. He's He's asking them to show him their hands, that their hands are empty, and that there's no weapon in them that they would use to try and overpower him. Okay? So first of all, David is assuming a position of powerlessness, right? David's assuming a posture of powerlessness. David says that the Lord is his rock. Verse 1, the rock is a, is a symbol of power. David is uh, assuming a posture of powerlessness. He is empty-handed, okay? To be empty-handed um, is not Only a posture that shows you're empty of power. To be empty-handed is also to say you're empty of merit. To be empty of merit. As uh, Toplady penned in the hymn, Rock of Ages, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. There is nothing that we bring that would merit a holy, righteous, worthy God to give us a favorable answer to the question that we have or the petition that we raise, okay? This is why we spent so much time looking at what was David's definition of wickedness? What was David seeing going on in the world and going on in his own heart? Why would David also even frame his prayer with, hear my plea for mercy, because not only does David bring no power, David brings no merit as well. The third thing that I want you to see is David not only brings a posture of powerlessness, David not only brings a posture that shows he, is, he has no merit to bring, but he also brings a posture of confidence. Now, how does that fit? See, most of us feel like if I am powerless, and meritless, I can also have no confidence. But this is where the Bible comes in and completely disrupts our categories. Look at how David prayed at the end of the psalm. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Save your people, bless your heritage. Back in verse 6 blessed be the lord for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy david experienced even in the midst of penning this psalm a a a healing touch from god something that assured him deep in his spirit that it was okay so in verse 9 save your people bless your heritage Where do we see this language showing up in the Bible? Well, for instance, in Deuteronomy uh, 4.20, look at what Moses says. He says this. In Deuteronomy 4.20, but the Lord has taken you and brought you out. That is speaking to all of Israel. The Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own heritage, of his own inheritance, as you are this day. David is asking God to remember his heritage, his inheritance, the great sum that he has claimed and as counting as his own. We come to God powerless. There's nothing we can do. And we come without merit. There's nothing that we can offer. But we also come boldly because God has claimed us as his own, a people of his own possession, so that because of that we can boldly, confidently, and repeatedly come to him on the basis not of our worth but of his promises to bring our petitions and our needs. Quoting one commentator, Um, it's it's helpful to think of it this way. If we are only only confident in ourselves, if we're only confident in ourselves, we won't pray because we won't feel helpless. Do you hear that? If you're only confident in yourself, you won't pray because you won't feel helpless. On the other hand, if we're only filled with self-loathing and no confidence at all, we won't pray fervently because we will feel that we are worthless rather than welcome. You hear that? One extreme is to say, I've got this, I'm good, I don't need to pray right now. The other extreme is how could I possibly pray? There's no way God would hear me. But the good news is that we need, because of Christ, we can balance our humility. We don't deserve this with our confidence, not in ourselves, but in God and his promises of grace to us in Christ Jesus in order to pray our petitions and our fears. David unwittingly points us to Jesus. In verse 8, the Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. In Hebrew, the word for anointed is Messiah. So as a Christian, as one who has been saved by Jesus, listen to what you can now do. In full honesty, you can pray this psalm as your own. You can say, Father, I deserve To be dragged off with the wicked. But I also know that you will uphold your anointed one. And I am his. Answer my prayer for the sake of the anointed one Jesus. In him I am your treasured heritage. I know that because you gave him up. I know that because you gave him up so that you would gain me. Do you hear me? The way that we get our, um, the way that we find our orientation in a disorienting world is to, with humility and honesty, go before God and say, this is who I really am and this is what I've really done, but this is who Jesus is and this is how he's claimed me as his own and I'm not who I once was and I'm not who I yet shall be, but I know this. I belong not to myself, but to Jesus. Fearsome things will happen all around us, but Psalm 28 gives us the words to understand ourselves and our world, and most importantly, Jesus. God will never leave, abandon, forsake, or forget us. Grow overconfident in yourself, and you'll stop praying. Friends, have some of you stopped praying? Has this summer series even just been a reminder week in and week out about how little you pray? Why? Why is it? Is it because you don't feel worthy? Or is it because you don't feel needy? We stop praying when we stop feeling our need. And we're afraid to pray When we don't feel our worth. And beloved, this day, as I said a moment ago, my job is not to preach for them out there. My job is to declare things to you and I. So if you've heard nothing else, hear this. You've got no place to run. You're not worthy enough and you're not able enough, but you're welcome. You're welcome to come to God and you're welcome to bring your fears and your needs and everything else to Jesus. Because he was made, his grave was made among the wicked so that you would never know what a grave was like. You would pass through death, but death wouldn't hold you. You would have life. So some of you stop praying. What are the warning lights? What are the... What are the? What are the big flashing lights on your dashboard saying? Do you need to repent of your pride and recover your humility and need? Or have some of you stopped praying because you're sure that you've alienated God? Beloved, listen, if you're in Christ, you're not forgotten, you're forgiven. There is nothing that you can do to separate yourself from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Do you hear me? Do you need to repent of your unbelief? Maybe it's not disregard. Maybe it is disbelief. Do you realize, friends, that the mercy seat is open for you and I today? Last question, and I'll stop. Have some of you found that today there's more wickedness in you than you first realized when you walked in this morning? Maybe there is more disregard instead of disbelief. Friends, listen, there is grace for you this day as well. Come, come and empty your hands. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. You have no power and you have no merit, but you can have confidence of Jesus. And this day he says, come. Come and feast on me and never hunger again.